0: This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.
1: Hello and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Sam Bright and thank you for joining me for my debut in the hot seat. I'm very pleased to be joined by Moira Lothian-McLean. Thanks for joining me, Moira.
0: Hi, Sam. It's going to be a delight, I hope. (laughs) I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to be in the co-hosting seat for once.
1: Well, thanks for being here. And coming up tonight, The Spectator's Kate Andrews declares that Britain is broken. Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves appears on an interesting LBC phone-in. And a shocking story about a former undercover cop who deceived a woman into a 19-year relationship. Right, to our first story... The Tories will soon be facing yet another by election. That's because former Tory whip Chris Pincher resigned from Parliament this morning after losing an appeal against his suspension. Pincher is the man who helped bring down Boris Johnson after it emerged that the former Prime Minister had made Pincher a whip despite knowing he had a history of inappropriate behaviour. The resignation will be a massive headache for Rishi Sunak, who has overseen his party losing a string of recent by elections, only managing to cling on in Uxbridge by a few hundred votes. Pincher's Staffordshire seat of Tamworth was held by Labour from 1997 to 2010 when it went to the Tories. In 2019, Pincher won it by a comfortable 20,000 vote majority. And so far, the predictions for the seat are tight. If there was a by-election today, uh, britain Alex puts Labour just half a percentage point behind the Tories. But Labour will expect to make up that ground over the coming weeks. And the bookies say that a Labour win is over four times more likely than a Tory one. And this isn't Sunak's only by-election nightmare ahead. Nadine Dorries, former seat of Mid-Bedfordshire, is also up for grabs. The bookies have named Labour as the favourite there as well. If they win, they'll overturn the largest majority in by-election history, standing at over 24,000 votes. So, the Tories are struggling, and Labour is on the rise, potentially carving a path to government. Given how likely it is that Labour will win the next election, it's right that the party should be scrutinised. One person doing a lot of that recently is Open Democracy's Adam Ramsey. And his latest piece is this. Starmer Assistant Among Active Corporate Lobbyists Working for Shadow Cabinet. Now, Ramsey reports that a Starmer staff member also works as an associate director for the major consultancy firm Grant Thornton. In this job, he sells his knowledge of politics, government, and public policy issues to corporate clients. The staffer is not named in the story, but it's known that Grant Thornton's clients and partners in recent years have included the arms company BAE Systems, uh, coal miners Adani, and a range of oil and gas firms. Nick Dearden, director of the campaign group Global Justice Now, is quoted in the story as saying this. This is yet more evidence that there's a revolving door between big business and the top players of the Labour Party. Indeed, over the last year alone, three other corporate lobbyists have been employed by Labour shadow cabinet members, with their salaries paid for by the lobbying companies. One worked for Labour's chair, Annalise Dodds, while the other was placed in the office of shadow business secretary, Jonathan Reynolds. Labour responded to the story by saying that all employment and secondment arrangements have been transparently declared in line with legal requirements and parliamentary rules, while Grant Thornton said this. As a leading provider of professional services in the UK, Grant Thornton has a deep expertise in the public sector, and has worked with a variety of government bodies and institutions over the years where our non-partisan input has been of value. Whilst any such arrangements will be a matter of public record, it would be inappropriate for us to comment on any specifics. Moya, what do you think that this open democracy story says about how Labour is now conducting politics?
0: Um... Well, it's interesting this story came out today because it was complemented by a story in Politico which was also about Labour lobbying, but sort of from the other side, which is about the fact that lobbyists Um, in the firms that gather around Westminster are so convinced that Labour is about to get into government that they're preparing for it. How are they preparing for it? Because they're setting up what they call Labour shops, boasting about the former Labour insiders or Labour politicians that they've now employed in order to get that inside understanding of what Labour's about, how to have these close links with them. So it's clear the lobbying firms has sensed that Labour is very open to their advances and they're gonna make the most of it. There was a particularly fascinating piece that if you go to the Twitter feed of a lobbying firm called H slash advisors Cicero, um, there's a piece that's recently published and it says, Insight, four key takeaways for engaging with the Labour Party following the shadow cabinet reshuffle. Now the author of that piece is a woman called Alice Perry. Who is Alice Perry? She is the former chair of the NEC, well a former chair of the NEC, and is now running to be on the 2024 Labour Conference Planning Committee. So these links are not just something that's happening behind the scenes. They're very much out in the open. And I think Labour is designing that. It's almost like you know, a baboon waves its red bottom and says, hey, I'm ready for mating. Come over here. Labour's like, hey, we're ready to be influenced. We we want you to influence us. We're ready to hear the call of big business. We want to hear these interests. Keir Starmer has very deliberately set Labour up to be this sort of open shop when it comes to lobbying and when it comes to big business, which, hopefully we're going to talk about a little bit more late in the show. But there was a really interesting quote that Politico also reported earlier in the year, where Keir Starmer was at a business roundtable and he said, allegedly, we want to extract as much as I can from you, have a really grown up conversation, and also for you to see that it's possible to mold and have your fingertips, fingerprints on what we're doing. So, just to drive that home. That's the leader of the Labour Party telling a group of business leaders in the UK that he wants them to know they can have their fingerprints on what Labour is doing in the, in the Houses of Parliament, on the policy that Labour is enacting, supposedly on behalf of the people. But he's saying, no, here you go, you have a chance to mould this in your interests. And. I also think it's probably going both ways in terms of, you know, Labour employing lobbyists within um, their offices, because in 2019, Open Democracy also did some research on the Tory intake then, and they found that one in, I think, five of the new Tory intake of MPs had previously been employed as either in corporate PR bods or lobbyists. I would love to see some analysis of the Labour selection lists that come up next year, who's on it and the professions they have, and how many people have links to the who are being put forward to be a member of parliament, have links to lobbying firms or corporate PR firms. Because the people that you get on selection lists say so much about the vision of the party and who they want to tie themselves to. You know, Labour in recent years have, well, since Kistama's taken over, there's been a lot of furor about. You know, so alleged rigging of election lists, um, making sure that socialist politicians, for example, find themselves not selected in order to go up for election. Find people who have served Labour their whole lives, have been really active within the party, are left on the cold. And you get people parachuted in who tend to be much more to the right of the party or, you know, are employed in the line of work that Labour now approves of. We look at our government. And we look at who's in power there. I think you write about this a lot. You know, it's, it's, hedge, it's former hedge fund managers, it's investment bankers. Those are the people the Tory party selected to enact the vision of the country, to enact the interests of this particular group. If Labour are going to ally for themselves further to lobbyists, I will bet, and I hate making bets, but I will bet there is a hell of a lot more lobbyists or corporate PR people that they will have up for selection in the next-gen election. That will tell you so much about their vision for the country and who they want to ally themselves with.
1: It seems bizarre to me as you say as someone who's written a lot about Tory conflicts of interest that Labour seemed to be listening um a few years ago said that it was going to ban the majority of um second jobs um that MPs could take and now corporate lobbyists uh staffing Labour shadow cab- cabinet operation What, like why do you th- why do you think there's been that contradiction to be- between what Labour has said publicly and what it's doing, sort of semi-in-private, with how it's conducting its its affairs?
0: Well, I think Keir Starmer's leadership and the direction of the Labour Party under him has been defined by this sort of contradiction, this public pledge that is undermined by what's happening actually within the internal mechanisms of the party and the actual actions of the party. And then much later, a rowing back of that public pledge, oh, you know, we actually don't want to fund Green Green policies by 28 billion per year. We don't have that. Sorry, we can't do that. Oh, actually, you know, I'm going to roll back on the fact that we're going to get rid of austerity. I'm not going to do that. Sorry. Why? Oh, we believe in growth. We believe in growth. So I have a feeling that this pledge will be revoked anyway. But I also think that, you know, this is a sleight of hand. It's not covered by the policy technically that. MPs can't have second jobs. Instead, they're simply employing people who are work, straddling both these worlds, the worlds of lobbying, the worlds of big business and the worlds of parliamentary politics. And this idea of secondment is fascinating to me because I have I've also heard, you know, from horses' mouths about people being in lobbying firms who are like, I'm being seconded to X's office. I'm being, why is there such a cozy link between these lobbyists? But well, how can you be seconded from a lobbying firm to work in a, you know, a parliamentary office of a politician? That makes absolutely no sense. That's like they, they're completely different things. That's like me being seconded from Navarra to go work at the Telegraph. I think that would actually make more sense than than this link. It, it, there's no crossover. These should be completely separate. You know, businesses, one is a sort of a public political party. The other is a private corporate business. How is there a secondment going on there? Bizarre. But again, as I said, this is a sleight of hand. It means that they can evade those accusations of hypocrisy on one hand, but also still maintain those very close links with these corporate firms, with big business, through them. So he gets to sort of play both sides of it.
1: Next story. The spy cop scandal rocked Britain when it emerged in 2010. It revealed that several undercover police officers had deliberately entered long-term relationships with female activists in order to infiltrate political groups, and it brought to light a systematic pattern of manipulation conducted by the police to disrupt political movements. Now, The Guardian has revealed a new case of sexual deception by the police. The Guardian writes that an undercover officer in the Avon and Somerset force deceived a woman into a two decades long relationship. And it's important to say from the start, this woman had absolutely nothing to do with anything the cop was investigating. Worse, both the police and the independent office for police complaints appear to have known about the relationship for years without telling the woman involved. The relationship began in 2001, when the woman, who the Guardian is referring to as Mary, met a man who claimed to be a businessman. The couple soon became serious. He took on the role of stepfather to her daughter from a previous relationship. And later, Mary and the officer had a son together. In 2019, they got engaged. But it was only a year later, in 2020, That the police finally told Mary that the man she'd been involved with for 19 years wasn't who she thought he was. The impact on Mary and her family has been immense. Her sister told The Guardian this. This whole thing has broken her. She has expressed suicidal thoughts. She cries daily. She does not sleep. She is really fearful. Our dad, the stress of this has destroyed his health. This has put him in hospital. My mum is on antidepressants. She can't sleep at night. We can't talk about this to anybody, not even with our own children. It's broken us as a family. Now, Mary doesn't want to talk about the deception publicly. One reason um, is that she might be fearful that, according to her own family, Avon and Somerset police have been bullying and threatening them against speaking out over the last three years. The Guardian report goes on to say this. Senior police, the family say, warned them that if the public were to become aware of the 19-year relationship, the revelation could spark riots. However, Mary's family now believe this and other warnings were used to co-opt them into a cover-up of the scandal. Mary's sister said the family believe that Avon and Somerset police want to protect themselves at all costs. They're supposed to serve and protect, she said. I don't believe they will protect you. I believe they will protect themselves. They're using us and making us cover for them for their failings. They are trying to silence us. The police have also allegedly warned Mary that speaking out might, might make her and her child a target for the criminals that the officer was investigating. The officer first met Mary when he worked for the West Midlands Police. It's understood that his undercover role involved an investigation into organised crime. In 2006, he transferred to Avon and Somerset Police, where the ruse continued. Then, in 2013, 12 years into the relationship with Mary, he left the force. So, to get that straight... This man continued his relationship using a pseudonym for seven years after he left the force. 2013 is also the year that senior officers in the force discovered that one of their officers had used his cover name to deceive a woman into a relationship and that she'd given birth to his child. We don't know if there's a connection between his leaving the force and the force's discovery of this information. We also don't know why it took the force so long to inform the family. Understandably, the family say that they've been betrayed twice by the police. First by the undercover cop and second by his superiors who they believe have tried to cover up the case. Mary's family lives in an area where relations with the police are difficult They fear that if it becomes known that they'd been connected to an undercover cop for two decades, people will assume that Mary collaborated with the police, potentially prompting an angry backlash. Mary's sister told The Guardian this, All we've wanted for them to do is clear our name and Mary's name of any involvement or knowledge and admit their failings in how they've treated Mary since then. We don't want our children going out and people thinking our family is working with the police. I want the police to be held to account for what they've done. This is the only way. We have been silenced for too long. So what have the police said in response? Avon and Somerset Police released this statement about the case. While working in an undercover role, a former officer engaged in an inappropriate relationship with a member of the public using their pseudonym. The member of the public has no connection with policing and until recently they were entirely unaware of their links to an undercover police officer. They played no role in and were not connected to the officer's operational deployment. This deployment is historic and happened many years ago. We fully recognize for those involved it has been deeply upsetting over a number of years and remains so today. So This deployment is historic and happened many years ago, the force says. Perhaps, but the relationship was allowed to go on until just three years ago, when Mary was finally told the truth by the police. The statement goes on to say this. We are sorry. We recognise and understand the devastating and appalling impact this has had on all those affected and we have taken and continue to take our duty of care to them extremely seriously. Our commitment to support them is unwavering, and our genuine and sincere intention is to ensure they're getting the support they need both now and in the future. In 2016, we recognised accountability for decisions should be reviewed independently, and so we voluntarily referred these matters to the Undercover Policing Inquiry. We also referred ourselves to the Independent Office of Police Conduct, the IOPC, and these investigations are still ongoing. We are fully cooperating with both these inquiries and will implement all recommendations made. The undercover policing inquiry reference there is the public inquiry led by former High Court Judge John Mitting. This case that we've just described is slightly different from the spy cops cases. Unlike in those cases, Mary had no connection to the subject of the cop's investigation. But police chiefs have long made clear that officers are, and to quote, not in any circumstances permitted to form relationships using their fake identities. The IOPC has released a statement too, saying this, we can confirm we are concluding a managed investigation into our allegations that senior officers failed to adequately investigate the conduct on, of an undercover police officer Once it had been brought to their attention, we are in the process of giving the outcome of that investigation to all concerned parties, so it would be inappropriate to say more at this time. The IOPC also confirmed that it's looking into complaints from members of the public who say they they were deceived by the officer, as well as complaints relating to senior officers deliberately withholding information from them. Tom Fowler is the host of the Spy Cops Info podcast, and he's covered the Spy Cops scandal extensively. Earlier today, I spoke to Tom about this particular case. I, like, firstly, it is
2: like unbelievably shocking. Yeah. Um, but I, I think like a lot of campaigners who have been uh, working on like the the the, the political uh, policing which, um the undercover police who've targeted political groups. Uh, I've been expecting this sort of thing to come up for a while. It's no surprise, really, that when you it's when you put police in, the, like give, you give them this opportunity, that they're going to take it. We, we live in such a in a sense, such a patriarchal society where sexism and misogyny are so bl- common, and particularly within the police force, that they are using women in this way in non-political settings as much as they are in political ones. I think that like this is. This is like the, the tip of the iceberg, really, in terms of these kind of cases. And The fact that this one had gone on for 19 years, that he had a, he had a son with her, that he was stepfather to her daughter, um, that they were engaged, that the police tried to, like knew about it for seven years before, you know, t- telling her the reality of the situation suggests that there's plenty of other situations which are maybe not quite as serious that are just getting brushed under the rug all the time.
1: And you talk about this in terms of being the tip of the iceberg. What we're we looking at in terms of the potential scale and the number of these cases that we may see in future or may not see at all, as you suggest?
2: When we look at, like, the undercover police, the, the spy cops, the special demonstration squad of the National Public Order Intelligence Unit, and the percentage of which of those were engaging in these deceptive sexual-abusive relationships, if we uh, imagine that it's, like, a similar sort of percentage is happening with, like, other po- other undercover police, like uh, the, the, the normal criminal undercover police... Um, that's thousands and thousands of cases. Maybe it's not that high, but the idea that it, you know, given the fact the police covered up for it for seven years, you know, given the fact that there was an undercover policing inquiry going on during most of that time period, and they just sought to, to brush it under the rug and spent the last three years bullying the family to stop them from speaking out, suggests that this it almost certainly is on a larger scale. Um, there's no safeguards in place. And if anything, the the Covert Human Intelligence Sources uh, Act as has made this sort of behaviour completely legal. It stands to reason that it's much more widespread.
1: You mentioned the spy cops cases. Obviously, this is distinct in some ways from from those. But what are the what are the similarities that you've seen between this case and the previous spy cops cases?
2: Well, I think it's like a total disregard for the for for women and, and for the, the safeguarding of the child, just as a, a, a complete lack of uh, empathy or um, any concern whatsoever. You know, the police were quite happy to use a woman in this way in order to further the legend of their deployment. Um, and when it, you know, once, once they knew about it, they, they had no, uh, there was no priority of informing her about the reality of the situation. They were much more concerned about protecting themselves. It, I, that's what it's always been about. Um, like the whole process we've, we followed with the, uh, Um, With the undercover policing inquiry, since all these revelations came out, you know, like 12 years ago, whatever it is now, every step of the way, the police have prioritized protecting themselves, protecting the police force, the institution.
1: So in the Guardian reporting, it suggests that the cops have been manipulative and controlling. I was just wondering the particular ways in in which that manifests.
2: Yeah, so that's twofold, really, right? It's like partially it's uh, the way in which we see like the the, the police behaving generally in, in like... Um, using their position, using the power they have over people in order to like control situations and tell people that if they speak out about these things, like worse things will happen to them. Um, but also I think there's a, there's a wider thing about like the, um, the nature of like the misogyny, misogyny in the patriarchal society in which we live in, right. In which way men often manipulate women in relationships and so forth, you know? So, I mean, I, I guess it's, it, it's, it's both right.
1: What emotional toll does this have on the victims?
2: I mean, the worst of the, uh, like the experiences of women who were deceived by undercover police in a political setting was like six, seven years at most, right? This is 19 years. I can't even begin to like imagine how Mary is feeling about this, the reality of the situation, you know? I mean, like that's her entire life upended, right? And like, how much of your life is a lie? How much, like I mean, one of the things that like uh, people who were deceived by undercover police often talk about, um, and it's certainly something I felt is like, you don't know the times you were close to these undercover cops. You don't really know how much of your opinions, decisions you made were like colored by these people in your lives. Right? Like these, these people like kind of, uh, influencing and, uh, shaping your personality. Right. So like, And that's over like a a, a smaller number of years. Most most of the the spy cops were deployed for like four or five years at a time. 19 years. I mean, like, I think of myself 19 years ago and the amount I've changed in that time period. Like, imagine that you've got like an undercover cop by your side, you know, like a a completely fictional person shaping your personality. That's, it doesn't bear thinking about like the, how you would like react to that, like the. Yeah, the toll on that, the toll on your mental health. I mean, I can't even begin to understand.
1: Horrendous, isn't it? They can't get those years back to any stretch of the imagination. But what recourse do they have, if any, for justice now?
2: I think we need to be realistic about the country we live in, the United Kingdom in 2023, when we don't have justice. um, I don't think that's very likely. I mean, I think it's always worth pursuing. It's very, very rare for, for police officers to be held to be account for their actions. I mean, like, I think it's always worth pursuing, but it's very unlikely that that's the case. Um, I think the best we can do is try to expose this as much as possible and hopefully, like, um, reduce the power of the police to do these kind of things. Um, the, the CHIS Act, the, the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Act, I mean, it's such a horrifically repressive piece of legislation. It desperately needs to be removed, uh, re- repealed. It needs to be got rid of. I mean, like the fact that we give these powers to the police I mean at the time there was no framework for it. there is now um that's just shocking and appalling. The fact that it, there, was, there was there was scant opposition to it is appalling as well. We need to roll back like the 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 powers of the police generally in this country you know the, the, the they're completely out of control um and we all know it's not just. I mean, this is just one example of many in, way, in, way in which the, po- the police are completely out of control and are willing to use people and use people's lives as just you know useful tools for them to to do their their um, their job. You know, it's it's disgusting.
1: Do you have much hope in the IOPC investigation? The inquiry is is that going to be a whitewash as well? Do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, it'll be a complete whitewash. I've got, I've got no faith in it whatsoever. I mean, like the, um, I mean, they were first informed in t- in 2016. <laughs> like, you know, she was only she was only told in 2020. I mean, th- that tells you everything you need to know about the kind of priorities they have. Like, I'm a great believer in like chasing everything down. You know, you're going to chase down every opportunity and like try and you know try and make things out of everything. But like, it's it's highly unlikely that the that these organisations are going to be acting in good faith. I mean the the public inquiry into undercover policing, which has been going on for nearly nine years now, i mean it is so horrifically behind schedule. We're, we're just about you know next it'll be next uh, July. it'll start looking at the deployments from the early 1980s. It's taken this long to get to that point so you know i mean I wouldn't expect that, that anything, anything to do with that to happen in a timely manner. Who knows we'll still be alive by the time they, they get to investigate this particular um uh, officer, if they ever do, if they decide that it's worth their while. I mean, it's supposedly that the inquiry's remit is limited to these political policing units. But, you know, it w- I think we're about to see a much, a much bigger, wider like, problem of uh, institutional misogyny, institutional sexism uh, inside the police where it was just normal behaviour to target women in this way and abuse them. And I think this case is just one that went on far too long and got out of control, so it's come to light.
1: That was Tom Fowler from the SpyCops Info podcast speaking to me earlier today. Next story. The latest front page of the Conservative Spectator magazine carries this headline. Broken Britain, what went wrong? The Tory periodical has seemingly discovered that our public services have been decimated over the last 13 years. The story is from its economics editor, Kate Andrews, about where Rishi Sunak's party should go next. She writes this. To a lot of the public, it seems as if the country is falling apart. The NHS is shambolic. Its waiting list now includes 13% of England's adult population. The sewage system is inadequate with rivers and coastlines full of effluents. Trains are expensive and overcrowded. Airports descend into chaos at the slightest glitch in air traffic control software. Now, you can't object to much of that, but even to your average political observer, it's clear why Britain's infrastructure is crumbling. Austerity. Public spending was slashed by the Tory Liberal Democrat coalition, a policy that has been copied and pasted by several subsequent Conservative Prime Ministers. And Andrews is somewhat of an expert on austerity, having previously worked at the Institute of Economic Affairs, a dark money libertarian think tank that supports lower taxes, fewer regulations and drastically reduced public spending. To be fair, in her Spectator article, Andrews objects to the government's cuts to capital budgets and basically reducing the money that we have to build things. But, as always, her fallback agenda is that the government has simply shelled out too much money. She says this, The government has long preferred grandiose yet half-baked investment projects. Theresa May used her final days in office to push through a legal commitment to net zero carbon emissions by 2050, the most expensive pledge of any UK Prime Minister ever. Now, There are plenty of wasteful government projects out there, such as the billions of pounds wasted on COVID contracts handed out like sweets to Tory mates and donors. But tackling climate change is not one of them. Andrews also exposes the ultimate fallacy of the austerity project when she writes this. The money saved by brutal cuts to long-term infrastructure investment was not returned to the taxpayer or used to reduce public sector net debt, which has doubled to £2 trillion since the Tories came to power. Hmm. Austerity, a policy that has caused misery for countless people, was couched on the very idea that it would reduce the gap between our public spending and tax returns. Yet, by nuking our public services and our ability to build stuff, austerity held back economic growth. If our economy had grown at its pre-austerity rate, it would be a third larger in 2027 than otherwise expected. A A third! Higher growth means higher wages and more money for the government, reducing the mythical deficit that occupied so much political attention after 2010. The basic fact is that the economic policies supported by the likes of Kate Andrews the Spectator and the IEA have broken Britain, and it's high time they owned up to it. Do you think we've got rid of the austerity mindset in this country that plagued us for so long, or do you think we're still stuck in the worldview of David Cameron and, shudder George Osborne? <laughs>
0: um, I think you know my answer before I even give it. Of course we haven't got rid of the austerity mindset of Osborne and Cameron. What I would say is we exist now in a weird liminal space where I think if you went out to the general public and you said, what is one of the major causes of the immiseration of our current existence? Why is public services crumbling? You know, this and that. Some of them might, you know, say, well, it's immigration. But I think a lot of them would say it's austerity because that message has trickled down. The idea that austerity, even if people don't understand exactly what it is, exactly why it was brought in, what it really means ideologically, the word austerity has been repeated enough in at, at, and attached to our current constrained circumstances, the shrinking of the state, you know, all our services being um, sent into unmanaged decline, that I think people realize that these two things are in correlation. However, I would say at the same time, the, ideolo- the ideology of austerity has cut through and become not even just gospel it's become common sense the idea that you know the national economy works like a household budget and we have to balance these books and we can't spend unless we save this money that has that is entrenched it's not even questioned you read mainstream articles etc and talking about labor policy you know when they're talking about austerity they would unquestionably say well you know Starmer has to do this in order to save money so you can do spending. There's no money left. They won't even analyze what they mean when they say there's no money left because that's not true. You know, we print money as much as we want. Um, and this, is, this austerity narrative has been picked up and run with by Labour who at every possible occasion, instead of taking the opportunity to refute the narrative to explain how the economy works or simply give a different one. You know, there's, there's the book um, that I think John McDonnell authored along with several other people in 2017, I wanna say, which was looking at alternative ways of organizing the economy in a socially democratic potential labor run state. Um, but instead of doing that, Starmer and Kai are just saying, well, we're, we're not gonna call it austerity, but we need to balance the books. We can't spend this money, we can't do this, we can't do that. I think someone said the other day on social media that schools could literally be falling in and which they are, but Starmer would get on TV and be like, well, here's how we're gonna save some extra money. We can't commit to spending on, you know, the roof that's just caved in on this high school because the concrete is turns out that is actually riddled with terrible building materials. Um and why are Labour doing this? Why? Because at this point in time, they have never had a, I think, a more opportune moment to provide a different narrative. It's not like it was you know, in 2019 when people didn't believe that things could be better or that what Labour was saying then, which is, what if we funded some public services? You know, what if you had free broadband because it's an important national service? What if we restored our, you know, the services that have been privatized to nationalization? What if we did all that? People didn't believe that. They also, at that point, they had, you know, Boris Johnson, a very charismatic leader on side. A different narrative was being spun, which was, Okay, we just need to finish Brexit, and then you will get everything you want, and Labour are promising a pack of lies. But that's not the context we're working anymore. The Tories are absolutely spent. They don't have this charismatic leader. They've done Brexit. They've done, you know, this idea of, like, we've tightened immigration, and things keep getting worse. People, even if they don't, can't directly link the fact that, you know, tightening immigration is not the solution to this, they know that whatever the Tories are promising is hot air. It's empty. They're not falling for that narrative in the same way that they might have done in 2019, and they're not going to buy in in the same way. It's almost certain that Labour are going to win the next election. So, why are they not taking this opportunity to put forward a different narrative? Because they're so obsessed with the idea of being electable. And what that means to Labour is not actually saying, well, what if we define what it means to be electable? What if we define and outline a political vision for the future? What they mean, this particular cohort of Labour top bods, mean when they say electable is it's already been decided for them by a bevy of communications um, executives in some you know, slick city firm who are running focus groups out the back of their glass-fronted building. And clearly, whatever message they're getting from those is the idea that people think that, well, if you spend money, then we haven't got the money left and you can't do that. But the problem with this is that's the austerity ideology that they've internalized. You can't fight austerity ideology by just doubling down on austerity ideology. You have to give people another idea, another message, another explanation for how the economy could be organized. Um, So... It's they're shooting themselves in the foot here because they're going to be left if they keep doubling down like, well, the Tories, you know, they spent on this. and They spent recklessly and we're not going to spend recklessly. We're going to do this. We need to save money. When it comes to the point where they have to spend because you have to spend to grow this economy, you have to spend to restore the things that have been taken away because that's the reason the country is on its knees. When they come to do that, how are they going to do that and how are they going to explain that? If, and if they don't do that, then we're simply gonna slide further into decline. And if the Labour government sees themselves sliding further into decline, then people will come down on them like a ton of electoral bricks, much harder than they have on the Tories. Labour have much less room for grace than the Tories ever have had. And this is an opportunity that they simply can't squander. And yet they are. I don't. Und- I, I. just don't understand how they can be so short-sighted, but they are, after all, this crop of politicians sort of grew up under the children of Thatcher, who was the queen of short-termism, and I think that is defining our politics in general at the moment. We have a crop of politicians across the board who think in the short-term and not in the long-term.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, the Conservatives are blamed for austerity. Labour isn't really challenging them on it. It's obviously pointing out uh, the deficiencies, you know, the crumbling buildings, et cetera, but where's the big vision? Um, I mean, it's quite interesting that Kate Andrews' piece suggests that Sunak may try to pitch the Tories as the pro-investment party now, which would be quite bizarre. I mean, Moya, how, how do you think the Tories and Sunak might try and squirm out of this bind? Could you see them adopting sort of, you know, a pro-investment message to try and boost themselves in the polls? Or is it just so ideologically anathema to them?
0: I mean, we've seen kind of what the Tories are already doing. They're trying to focus themselves on things like antisocial behavior. They're trying to, you know, promise things on immigration. They're going anywhere. To talk, and they talk about, you know, we're going to invest 10 million, which is pittance in t- different budgets. They're like, we're going to give this much to the NHS, absolute pittance. But I do think the Tories have kind of given up. <laughs> they, they're they more preparing themselves for opposition at this point, so they can go away, lick their wounds. Sunak, I think, is probably shoring up some high paying job elsewhere, you know, back in the tech sector perhaps, back in investment banking, somewhere like that. I think they're aware that they're fighting uphill battle. So it's more about pitching themselves right now as the party in opposition and setting up these battles that they will later fight labor on. And labor are just playing into that off the bat. But they don't seem to, again, have the foresight to understand that they're setting themselves a trap. Or maybe they do, and they think they'll just wiggle out of it at a later date, which is exactly what the Tories have done all around the line, all, all down the line. But eventually, you get to the point where there's no more wiggle room, as the Tories have found. I, I don't think there is anything they can do at this stage to change the narrative, because they've been in power for 13 years. They've changed the narrative on multiple occasions, and they have run out of words. <laughs> there is nothing left that they can say to convince voters, unless you know there's a deus ex machina that happens at the last minute. And... I don't know, some combination of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss comes through and leads, the, leads them all to halt. But I really do not think that's about to happen.
1: Let's go along to the next story. Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves has joined LBC for a call-in show. Members of the public rang in with their questions for the person likely to be the next Chancellor of the Exchequer. These calls are always carefully vetted. But there was one question that Reeves probably wasn't expecting.
2: Right, let's go to Helena, who's a first-time caller in Nottingham. Helena, hello, what would you like to ask? Hi, Rachel. Hi, Helena.
3: Hi, I've got a question. I've got a quote here from a pretty prominent economist. And they say that Labour needs to provide an alternative for aggressive policies being prioritised by the Conservatives. The banks and those earning more than £100,000 could quite easily contribute a little more. And unless they do, inequality and poverty will inevitably soar in the months and years ahead. Do you agree with that
1: statement? Now that seems like pretty sound economic advice. Tax the richest a little bit more and claw back some money from our bloated financial sector. Then use the extra cash to reduce poverty and inequality, perhaps by funding progressive policies like the things Keir Starmer pledged when he was running for party leader. Let's see how Reeves answered.
4: The way that I believe that you can reduce inequality, reduce poverty, and actually also improve the living standards of ordinary working people, not in poverty, but struggling to get by, is through growing the economy. Because that is the way that we can ensure that working people have more money in their pockets, and we have more money for public services. And one of the real failures over these last 13 years is to grow our economy in all parts of the country, creating those good quality high-paid jobs. So my priority is to get that economic growth back in our economy, uh, to lift people out of poverty, and to have the money we need to invest in our schools and our hospitals and so much else of the public realm, which has been you know, decimated, frankly, by this Conservative government.
1: Now, that's not a firm yes. In fact, it's a classic Labour answer at the minute, talking about growing the economy without really saying how and then letting trickle-down economics do the rest. But little did she know, Reeves was in for a plot twist.
2: Just going back to Helena's quest, you know the economist that she quoted, that was actually you.
4: <laughs> uh, well, look, I mean, I want to reduce poverty and inequality. I didn't go into politics, but how do you do that? What are the practical well, things that suggesting we can do? Well, your in
2: that quote was to tax the banks more and those earning more than £100,000 more, but you've gone back on that.
4: Well, look, the way that I think that we can lift people out of poverty and reduce inequality, as I say, is to get the economy growing, and that has been the missing ingredient these last 13 years.
1: So Rachel Reeves went into politics to reduce inequality and poverty but people understandably want to know practically how she plans on doing that she previously had a practical answer higher taxation on those who can afford it but now she seems to have one vague line grow the economy by the way that caller helena is also known as the streamer no justice mtg you might even have seen her in the navara live chat this is how she responded to Reeves' comments.
3: She's going to press the growth button, right? The Conservatives have had access to the big red growth button for 13 years and they've just not pressed it. Don't know what they were doing. Rachel Reeves, she's going to take the necessary steps to go and press the growth button because she's not going to plan for growth. The only real actual plan I've heard from her is her saying, well, we need to reform to be able to crowd in private sector investment. When in the own article that I cited here, she even said there that there should be no expectation for private sector investment to happen in the absence of public sector investment, which again, uh, these are all statements that she's previously made that I agree with. I think we should be taxing the rich more. I think we shouldn't be relying on private sector investment. But when she says she wants to reform her way to growth, to get more private investment, this is right-wing. This is neoliberal, thatcherite, supply-side, deregulatory, Tory economics. That's the only way that you can look at this. The other option, that's what a kind of more Keynesian economist would think, someone who's more kind of on the center left, is that you would incentivize growth by using fiscal stimulus. You'd use fiscal stimulus to put more money into people's hands, more demand in the economy to be able to incentivize the supply side of the economy to meet stimulus on the demand end. That's what what we want to see. It's what the the National Investment Bank plan was, as far as the Jeremy Corbyn manifesto was concerned. That's why growth and interest rates were so low for so long. Is because there wasn't enough fiscal stimulus. There wasn't enough demand side policy to get the economy moving again and get people spending money, which is why we've had anemic growth for so long. And those problems have persisted up until now.
1: So the Tories have run out out of ideas. That seems patently clear. There are buildings crumbling beneath our feet after 13 years of austerity and Tufton Street free market economics. And there seems to be a yearning from people like Helena and I'm sure plenty of others um, for a more radical, a bolder, progressive vision. But Labour seems to be sticking to its guns that um, it's going to be able to convince people that it can grow the economy I think it may come unstuck during an election period where it's asked constantly, how exactly are you going to grow the economy? But let's see. And Reeves' answer left another caller infuriated too.
5: You said you came into politics to change things, and yet all I've heard from you and the front bench is Tory policies for a Tory crisis. You're not going to tax wealth. You're not going to do much with income tax. You're leaving the profits of the banks, the water, and the energy untouched. I remember very well, because I was born in that period, the Attlee Attlee government. And what they came in with was a four-letter word, hope. You aren't communicating hope. There is no ambition in evidence in what you're doing. And they had a much harder job than you've got to rebuild the country after the Second World War. COVID is bad. 2008 was terrible. But austerity has to be stopped. And you seem to be wanting to carry on Worse than being the Treasury, because you are an ex-banker, Bank of England banker, and you don't seem to be in, in making any kind of ambition clear to me as a voter or the public as, as voters, whether you're prepared to rise to these challenges, which are far worse than what we had in World War Two.
0: Why might Labour have rode back on their plans to tax the wealthy? Um, well, if we're going to talk about it properly. So obviously tax reform continually polls as popular, it seems like an absolute no-brainer. Why would you not in times when the rich are just getting richer, when wealth inequality has remained completely stagnant in the same, you know, the divide is the same as it was 17 years ago. Why would you not tax the rich? Why would you not talk about reforming tax and as a whole reform the council tax, perhaps all these policies are pretty damn popular when you put them to the general public. There was a really good new Statesman article that came out, I think t- today maybe, which talks about the great tax con and how labor is really letting themselves down by not making tax and reforming tax a central part of their pitch for leading the country there's a quote from gary stevenson friend of Navarra, on there in, the, in this article where he says it's hard not to see the tax code as a class-based system and that we're living in a new aristocracy everything you know the economic the entire economic tax system including things like qualitative eating are all set up in order to keep the wealthy really bloody wealthy when you're talking about why labor might have You know, why are they shunning something that would be such an obvious vote winner? Well, I think personally that the answer lies when you look at the party's finances and their membership. So Labour, I think it was quite recently, actually, that they released their their sort of membership figures for last year. And they've lost 125,000 members since the general election in 2019, which obviously will come with an accompanying drop in membership fees. Yet... In 2022, the Labour Party raised nearly £50 million pounds with a £2 million surplus, which is some of the most money they've raised in years. So here's the key bit of that. So National World Analysis revealed that last year, Donations from private individuals and companies, the Labour Party, outstripped contributions made by trade unions or members. Half of Labour's donations now come from individuals or private companies. 35% comes from trade unions. The largest donor, the largest single donor to the Labour Party was Lord Sainsbury, who I think at one point gave $2 million in one go to the Labour Party. Do they want to piss these people off? That's the question. Because a wealth tax, is doesn't matter how benevolent these, these millionaires are some of them will get pissed off by a wealth tax. And, you know, people who fund the Labour Party, maybe less so if, you know, individual donors like Lord Snowys, there's so many, they don't don't even care. But some like who works as an executive in one of these big corporate companies that they're courting, they're going to be pissed off if Labour is saying, well, actually, we're going to do a wealth tax. They're like, whoa, (laughs) Don't, don't... don't come for my bonus. Um, and Labour are really pivoting to become a party that are funded rather than workers who make up trade unions, rather than members on the ground, this grassroots base. A party funded by privately held wealth. We already have one of those. It's called the Tory Party. But this is a deliberate strategy that they're following to distance themselves from the unions. There was a political article earlier in this year as well, which looked at Lord Mandelson's involvement with Labour because he's back in the fold. Apparently, got the ear of Keir Starmer. He was saying that this, you know, this is deliberate. We we don't want to be seen as influenced by these hard left militant unions. We we want to almost you know disaffiliate, not in a name but in terms of where the money's flowing. And instead, we want to ally ourselves with these big companies. So you've got nearly 8 million from these private donors, which uh, this company called Eco Citrusy, which I can't pronounce properly, but it's a renewables firm and Drax Power, who obviously do nuclear power. So Labour could still say, oh, you know, well, we're, we're working with big corporates that are green, but it's still a big bloody corporate. It still has big bloody corporate interests. Those over over- Whelm any sort of you know collective interest on the part of the general public. At the heart of that, anytime you get a corporate, big corporate business, what people are mostly concerned with, whatever message they say, you know, we're gonna do green renewables, we're gonna do this and that. What they're really concerned with is capital, the movement of capital, how much capital is going in their pockets, how much capital that firm is making in general. And the conclusion is obvious. Labour no longer wants to be seen as on the side of the workers, instead, they want to be seen as on the side of big business.
1: Yeah, it seems to be a theme running through what we've said this evening. Um, Labour's capture by lobbyists and how that is potentially altering its um, policy position. Um, Moira, I think, makes a very convincing case. Um, And with that, thanks for joining me tonight, Moira. It's been a pleasure having you on.
0: It's been so fun co-hosting. I do love to talk and it's been really enjoyable having you in the hot seat. Maybe you can, yeah, can we actually swap more often so I can go and work in nice apartments, which I do not own, is not mine. I've seen people are saying nice things about this decor. Sadly to say, I'm simply house-sitting for someone who has a very good interior design eye. Spot on.
1: Better than my backdrop. Um, Well, thanks everyone for watching this evening. Um, The show will be back tomorrow from 6 p.m. Uh, for now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night.
5: This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com
2: support.